Hey friends, welcome to God on Tap, and as always, I am Nika Spalding, and we are pressing on in the book of Jude, and so we're going to look at the second half of verses 11 through 13 and wrap up that section. And so uh, yesterday we talked about these other examples that Jude is using to describe the false teachers, and today he's going to move into six metaphor type things. And so we'll take a look at that and, and wrap up this section today. And so here is the word of the Lord. This is Jude verses 11 through 13, Jude verses 11 through 13. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is the word of the Lord. Have y'all ever, so when I was growing up, uh, my family is kind of a a blended family on many parts just because of marriages and and remarriages and things like that and divorce and, you know, all the things that many of you probably experience. And because of that, sometimes you know how you have family uh, from different parts of the country. And sometimes, like, I, I am... I grew up in Oklahoma, but I'm not, I really was more of a city folk. My mom's from Los Angeles. And so we've got more of that like city mouse charm to us, so to speak. And um, so there was a season in my life when part of my family included folks from Missouri and they had, and they were very country. And I don't don't say that negatively so much as just like, yeah, they were just, they, they were country folks. And so sometimes they would turn a phrase that I'd be like, what? Uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't think of any of them. Like I remember even just like yens and y'alls and, and things like, I remember asking them if they want a Coke and you know, that whole Coke versus just saying that you want a Dr. Pepper or whatever and blah, blah, blah. And because I could, I was like, I really was racking my brain trying to figure this out. Like, what are those sayings that they used to say? Um, and I couldn't figure any of them out. So what I did was I Googled Southern, which I get Missouri's not Southern, but y'all bear with me here. I Googled like Southern people's sayings or Southern folks sayings or country folks saying, I know something to that effect. And uh, well, I like to think that I struck gold. And so I'll just give you a couple of examples. So like one, if somebody says to you, his heart is a thumping gizzard, that means he's cold hearted and cruel. Uh, and if you say things like that possums on the stump, that means it's as good as it gets. Y'all, I have never, ever, ever, ever heard these sayings in my life. Uh, but I think I'm going to start using them in my daily speak. And so what's, what's, what's my point in doing this? Uh, I think it's, a, it's an example of how so many times we use metaphor, we use figurative language in our daily speech that if you're from that area, it makes total sense. Like if you're from somewhere I assume is the deep south and you say like that possum's on the porch like people are gonna know what that means but like I don't know what that means like I would have literally somebody ask me what does that mean because I don't have a context for possum sitting on a porch I'd be like I don't know is that a good thing or is that a bad thing and honestly because possums are hideous creatures that creep in the night I probably would have told you it was a bad thing, right? I would have told you from the perspective of the homeowner, not a great, you know, front porch value for your home. It might bring down your your property value. But if you're thinking about it from the possum's perspective, I suppose that's a really positive thing. Okay, 
here's my long-winded way of saying Today in the Jude passage, we have some of these metaphors. We have Jude reaching into his deep cultural heritage to use metaphors that the people hearing it for the first time would have no doubt understood their meaning. But for us, especially folks removed a couple thousand years and removed from an agrarian society, because some of the metaphors that I just read to you really depend on you understanding nautical things as well as farming things. And so What we're going to do is we're going to unpack all six of these and talk about how these metaphors continue to speak about these false teachers in their midst. And then what is our big so what? And so here we go. Here we'll jump right in. And so the first one is this. He says that these false teachers are like dangerous reefs in, and your translations might say love feasts, or it might say at your meals, or it might say... um, Ours was like, ESV says love feast. I'm trying to think. You might even have communion or communal gathering. So this love feast thing, what Jude is saying here is in the early church, we see in Acts 2 especially establishing this idea of community. And we've said this many times on this blog, on this, excuse me, it's not a blog, a podcast, that eating together in the ancient world was so much more than just sharing a meal. It was a way to identify with this person. Hospitality was a way to say, you belong to me and I belong to you. And so in the early church, when you have people from disparate backgrounds, you have various, you know, you've got slaves, you've got freed people, you've got rich, you've got poor, you have all these people coming together, very diverse groups of people trying to form a community built on unity and love. A great way to demonstrate that love unity is feasting together. And it's a way to demonstrate justice because those who have excess can bring that excess and serve those who lack, but those who lack can can serve in other ways, right? You might have a musical gift, you might have something else, but it was a way for people to come together and to share all that they have and break bread together as we see in Acts 2. And in the early church, there really wasn't a distinction between communion. And we see communion being established in, of course, 1 Corinthians. We see Jesus establish it, just the holiday we just celebrated, right? We've got the Passover meal, that last supper. Um, I deliver to you what I first received on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said this, and after giving thanks, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this, for me, right? We've got Paul encouraging. So again, communion was a critical piece of the early church because they're doing this this sacrament as a way to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. The context of the sacrament in the early church, especially in the first probably couple hundred years, was at these meals. So the church would gather together, typically in the evening, they would have this meal, and it was in the context of those love feasts, those feasts that demonstrated their unity and love, that often then communion would also take place. So you're breaking bread, you're enjoying each other, you're fellowshipping, and then you're also instituting the Lord's Supper, and those were one and the same. So here's Jude saying, hey, in your love feasts, you have these, these dangerous reefs coming in. The part of it that makes it especially dangerous is in these love feasts, not only would they do communion, but chances are it would be an opportunity for prophecy as well as teaching to participate to take place. And in the early church, it was it, there was a communal aspect to this. So you can imagine these teachers would have the opportunity to come into what is supposed to be a time for justice and goodness and unity and love to be on display, a time where everyone comes in sits at equal footing. There's no honored guest, right? We're, we're not playing favorites. We're coming in rich, poor, free, slave, Jew, Gentile, whatever, male, female, coming in, sitting around, breaking bread, instituting the Lord's Supper, and it's in their midst that Jude says, hey, you have dangerous reefs. 
Okay, so what do we mean by that? Dangerous reefs. That could be a little bit like a possum. Da- what does that mean by that, right? Because I don't know about you. When I think of reefs, my mind goes to Australia, Great Barrier, right? I think about it from a perspective of like when I'm on vacation, I get to snorkel and all of that stuff. But take yourself back into the ancient world before there was sonography on boats, before there was all these maps and all that, reefs in the water, which is probably reefs is, there's a little bit of debate. is like, is this a reef? Is this a rock? What is this? But most likely what Jude is saying is in your lefties, these very beautiful, precious times for the church together, you have folks who cause shipwrecks. Most likely that's what Jude's saying is these are folks, the dangerous reefs in your midst are the kinds of rocks and the reefs and the things under the sea and poking out that when boats try to come into harbor or when boats are on the sea, they are incredibly dangerous. Because if your boat comes into contact with this dangerous reef, your boat is going to sink. And so here's Jude continuing on. We've seen him talk about Old Testament examples, right? We've seen him boom, boom, boom. He talked about it from the followers perspective. And then he's talked about from the leader's perspective. And now Jude is switching gears and using metaphors from his time period that people would have understood and known really well. And then he's saying, listen, you need to be careful. These rocks that could cause your ship to go down are sitting among you in the most vulnerable places. Okay, so that's the first one. We have dangerous reefs. Then the second one, our second metaphor is he says that they are shepherds only looking out for themselves. So this one, again, if you have any, if you're, if you're accustomed to uh, biblical imagery, biblical literature, then, then shepherds is a, is a metaphor that you'd be very accustomed to, right? Well, shepherds, though, are meant to be people that sacrifice for the good of the flock, right? Shepherd is a well-known metaphor that has already described Jesus. It's a well-known metaphor at this point in the church's history of people who are in charge to take care of the flock among them, right? You've got Jesus even as he rises from the dead and he comes to Peter and he's like, Peter, do you love me? And this is such a beautiful restorative moment for Peter because he has denied Jesus three times. And, and Jesus comes to him, he's like, do you love me? And he's like, you know, I love you. And he's like, what does he say? Feed my sheep. And it's as if the good shepherd, the one good shepherd, Jesus is passing along to his leaders, to his disciples, the people that are going to go out and make the kingdom unleashed on this earth for those who would lead churches, he's calling them shepherds. So this is a very common metaphor. But what he's saying about them is unlike other shepherds who lay down their lives for their sheep, which is what the good shepherd taught us to do, these shepherds feast for themselves. They're not selfless, they're selfish, and they're sitting among you. And so you should be careful of them. So we've got one, dangerous reeds. Two, shepherds looking out for themselves. Three, waterless clouds that get pushed along by the rain. This one I think is really uh, profound and beautiful. Some of the best writers use imagery, right, from nature and things like that. And so what is a waterless cloud pushed on by the rain? Well, again, if you're an agrarian society, which is a farming society, rain is gold, right? I mean, you, you live and die literally by the rain that comes in. We have so many places in the scripture that talk about how God brings the rain and how he rains the land, right? And so here are these clouds. So if you are a cloud, you are what? A promise of rain. So when you are coming in, you promise to give sustenance. You promise to give this life-giving thing that's inside of you. You promise to empty yourself out so that the things under you can be nourished and thrive and grow. And so here are these false teachers claiming to have something but like, and then this is probably a Palestinian reference. Like it, people were used to seeing clouds come in and then the winds pushed the clouds back out so that they, they did not come and give the promise of what they said. And this is probably Judas Browering from Proverbs twenty five fourteen, because this is what it says and you can see the similarities. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. 
I mean, boom, right? Here's God in the book of Proverbs sealing for us what is wisdom. And here's God himself declaring, here's what is good and right. And here's what is bad and wrong. And he says, a man who has a gift and does not give it is like a cloud and winds without rain, right? And so you can imagine Judas picking up on this imagery. You promise something good and you do not deliver. That is horrifying. Like, get out of here. Get out of here, you rainless cloud. Okay, so we've got dangerous reeves, shepherds looking out for themselves, waterless clouds, and then he says they're fruitless trees in late autumn. And this, so the autumn part or kind of these fruitless trees in the late season, the question is what, what makes them so egregious? Like what makes them so wrong? And regardless of the season, what Jude is, the point he's trying to make here is, hey, the trees have been growing. And at the end of their season of growth, you should expect very ripe fruit. And it's especially difficult because imagine, again, you're in an agrarian culture. You've been waiting on the reward. You've been, there's been investments in the tree. There's been time put in the tree. And you're counting on that tree to deliver the very thing that you need to, to be nourished, to have sustenance, to, to be able to sell, to provide, right? It's a communal aspect as well. And so here are these trees at the end of their season, and they have produced no fruit. And so it's not just the tree not only stinks, like there were people counting on the tree, like, it's like one thing to be like, tree, you, you stink. But it's another thing to be like, tree, there were empty stomachs that were counting on you to fill them. Uh, and so this, this metaphor for me really came into play. I went to Portland, Maine at the end of or beginning of October in 2019. And I decided to go out and check out a tree orchard. And it was, it was at the end of sort of the season of like the ripest part of when. So, and it was unbelievable to me how many apples were on the ground like they were so ripe they not they weren't even just clinging to the tree like they were overly abundantly ripe and were hitting the ground and it was um, unbelievable to me as I walked through this orchard to see how many apples these trees produce like the abundance of nourishment and and apples that came out of these trees and to think that like all the investment (laughs) these farmers make all the investment that people make and then to it would be I thought to myself it'd be haunting to walk these rows and see no fruit. And yet that's what Jude is calling these false teachers. You are lying about what you pretend to produce. So dangerous reefs, shepherds looking out for themselves, waterless clouds, fruitless trees in late autumn. And then he says, you're like wild waves of the sea, casting up your foam of shame or your shame of all that stuff. And again, he's probably um, quoting from Isaiah or referencing Isaiah because Isaiah 5720 has something very similar to this. He says, uh, the wicked are like waves that are tossing all around. And it says that they toss up their own mire and dirt. And so if you've ever been like, you know, you've been onto the beach or something, you see like it's very clear and it's blue and you're just like, wow, it's so beautiful. And then if you've been to a to the ocean when it's really churning, what happens is it picks up the gunk, like, right, it picks up the icky on the bottom and it tosses all around. So the water is not beautiful. It's not clear. And it's revealing the dirt and the nasty that's underneath. And that's what he's saying here is like, hey, you are like a sea that's tossed around, which means you are dangerous for those who would be on it. And again, the people in the ancient world totally got this, right? Storms on seas were a big part of Jesus' teaching. We understand that. Paul understood that. He's dealt with shipwrecks. Like people get that a sea that is just being tumultuous is a very dangerous thing for those who are on it. And he's saying, hey, you, by your activity, you're turning up your own shame. Like we're seeing your gunk because you're tossing all about. This is what Jude is saying about these false teachers. And then the last thing, the wandering stars. And it wouldn't be true to Jude if he didn't include some weird reference to some Jewish apocalyptic. Like Jude just can't stay normal. He's he's our hippie writer of this letter. And so here's our hippie Jude saying that you're like wandering stars. So what does this mean? 
most likely because Jude's dependence on the book of 1st Enoch has been pretty clear throughout his letter so far. He is referencing 1st Enoch over and over again. In 1st Enoch, it was believed that angels controlled the celestial bodies. So when a, a celestial body, like let's say it was a meteor or a comet, did something weird in the sky, Jewish apocalyptic literature during Jude's time would say, that's probably a fallen angel. That's probably a disobedient heavenly being. And so Jude is again using this idea of this rebellion that took place in the heavenly realms, and he's comparing that rebellion in the heavenly realms again to these false teachers. And so again, Jude's like, hey, you remember those angels that rebelled? Guess what? You're just like them. You're the wandering stars just like them. So those are our six, right? He's talking about your dangerous reefs, your shepherds only looking out for yourselves, your waterless clouds. You promise something and you cannot deliver it. Just like the fruitless trees in autumn, you are doubly rooted. Like you stink, you fruitless trees. You are like the wild waves of the sea. You are treacherous for those who are on you and you are just churning up your own nasty. And you are just like the fallen angels, you wandering stars. Boom, right? And so, okay, so we're, we're, this pattern has already emerged, right? We're in this incredible letter of Jude. Hey, I'm um, the half-brother of Jesus, except I'm too humble to tell you that, so I'm going to call myself the servant of Jesus and the brother of James. And I was going to write to you about this, but I don't need to write to you about that because there's these false teachers. So just remember, like, be careful. And then here I am going to go, gat, 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 and go toe-to-toe with these false teachers. And Jude has no chill. Like, we've already seen it over and over again, right? The first, he gives three examples from the Old Testament, and he borrows from First Enoch, and then he gives another three examples, and now he's giving us six metaphors. Like, he, if somebody were like, hey, how do you feel about something, right? And if somebody was like, hey, Nikes, how do you feel about uh, Taco Bell bean burritos fresco style? Like, I'd be like, huh. Yeah, I mean, I like them. I, you know, no shame in my game. I'll eat Taco Bell. No shame in my, not the meat, but I'll, I'll eat a bean burrito fresco style for sure. And then if somebody were like, hey, Nike, how do you feel about the burrito sushi roll at uh, the sushi uni place up in Plano, in downtown Plano on 15th Street? I'm going to need five minutes to tell you how I feel about that because I love it. I am obsessed with it. The two different dipping sauces, the fact that they roll it in the paper, the the soy paper as opposed to the thing, so it makes it easier. It is big, right? I could go on and on. We do that, right? We, we are passionate about the things, like we spill more words over the things we're passionate about, both in the ways that we love, but also in the ways that we don't like, right? So there are things that like, if somebody's like, hey, how do you feel about the show uh, Keeping Up With The Kardashians, right? I'm not really a fan. Like, I'd be like, I don't know. I think it's dumb, whatever. But then if somebody's like, hey, how do you feel about, if they're like, how do you feel about, and y'all, this is, I'm about to get mired in controversy here, but I don't care the movie Titanic. Oh my gosh. Let me tell you all the reasons why I don't like that movie. How it is such a Western phenomenon that she is not loyal to her mother, that she chooses the individual over the greater good of the community. And yes, I recognize there's classism in the movie. I recognize it's supposed to be this coming of age, but no, it's a selfish little girl who doesn't do what she needs it right. I can go on and on, right? Because obviously I feel very strongly about this. I'll fight you on this point uh, for those of you who disagree. So what's my point, right? We we tend to be overly communicative in the things that really bother us. We tend to spill a lot more words on paper. Like we spill more ink on the things that we're like, yeah, that 
that really bothers me. You might get a couple of sentences. If I need to rant, right? We've all seen it, like, right? Just look at a Yelp review. If someone hates something, you're not getting a concise three sentence, whatever. You're going to get an entire backstory of why that business owner offended you and your mother and how you vow for the rest of your life to make sure that this donut stand never gets any customers, again, right? Or whatever, right? So what's my point is you can tell just in the amount of words that Jude uses to talk about how unbelievably dangerous, how unbelievably dangerous these false teachers are, you can tell he is worked up and fired up and passionate about it. And so how are we supposed to receive that? Well, I think we're supposed to read Jude as a really good pastor and as someone who really loves and is concerned for the people reading this letter. Because it's one thing to look at it from the perspective of the false teachers and be like, man, Jude, you are like, whoo, whoo, you are reading their mail. Like you went for them and their mamas, right? But when you consider these most recent metaphors that we just read, the reason why I think Jude is so passionate and willing to spend so much time leaving no room for doubt about the way he feels about these false teachers, like you cannot get to the end of this 13th verse and be like, wow, okay, false teaching, like that's kind of bad. No, no, no. Like you have gotten to the end of these 13 verses and been like, man, it's the, if you take the FBI's most wanted list from the Old Testament and you compare that list to Jude's list about these false teachers, you're going to see a lot of similarity, right? They, Jude is saying the worst of the worst that we've seen in rebellion, that is you. He has left no room for wondering. And the question is, why? Is he just mad? Is he just worked up? Is he just like wanting to get in a fight? Is this like the ancient version of like online rage hate through Instagram? Like why is Jude doing it? And I think we get a snippet of it in today's lesson because they're among your love feasts and they will shipwreck you. Right? The more passionate Jude is, I believe, is because he's driven by a genuine desire to love and serve those receiving his letter. Because it's not just, hey, I don't like these people. I don't like that you hang out with them. I want you to like me more. Jude's not some petty guy who's staging some sort of preaching war here and you like his preachers and sneakers better. Like, no, 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 no. I think Jude is adamant and passionate because these people promise you nourishment. And when it doesn't work out, you are left hungry. They promise you a safe harbor. And when they wreck your ship, you are left fighting for your life. They promise you goodness and, and, te- and, and, a, and a way, in a path forward, in the way of the Lord. And they leave you with destruction and decay and brokenness. And because of these metaphors, we get a peek into how concerned Jude is. They are the ones that leave you without water for your land, without food for you and your family, without the spiritual nourishment that you need, and they will sink you. You think it's not serious that they're in your love feast? They will sink you. And so as passionate as Jude is, I think as a pastor, I really resonate with him. Because it's one thing to be arrogant and mock other teachers, and it's another thing to say, I'm concerned that you might harm those that I love. And if you come to harm those that I love, you're not going to get a couple of polite sentences from me. You might get what you get in Jude, and that's a whole treatise on why you need to stay away Because there's warning sirens and there's the lights going off saying there is a real and serious danger. These false teachers are not just jerks 
who eat your food and leave. They're not just people who come in and make fun of you and make you feel a little bit bad. They are people who will sink your ship. So praise be to God that Jude loves his hearers enough to warn them. That Jude loves his hearers enough to say this is serious enough that I'm concerned for you and the spirit of the unity and the bond of peace in which your community has. Do not let these people in your love feast. Hold on to your love feast. Let your love abound so much more. Keep them out so that when autumn comes, you may feast. And when your lands need rain, God will provide. And when you're on the ship in treacherous waters, you'll come home safely to harbor. That's what the church is meant to be, a place of nourishment, spiritual watering, and a safe home to come home and harbor. So I'm grateful for the example of Jude, and I'm grateful that he takes it seriously and is a good warning for us. And so here's our big so what. We should be people that when we create churches that they're a place of nourishment, that if we promise fruit, it'll be there, and that when people come home, They're not going to hit us as rocks, but instead there'll be a soft sand landing for them to come home and harbor for the night. All right, friends, if nobody's told you that they love you, I do. Way more importantly, the God who promises rain and delivers it, who promises nourishment and gives it and promises you a safe harbor home if you trust in his son. He is crazy about you. Peace.